from PRX. This is Studio 360. I'm Kurt Anderson. And I'm sitting on the steps of the Lincoln Memorial. This first level of garden. This is Thomas Jefferson's vegetable garden. I like to have the roasted chicken paste. Very well done. Editing is all about timing. I try to get a little bit away from the actual subject. You must get sick of your own voice, right? Studio 360. With Kurt Anderson. Such spoiled girls you are. Such spoiled brats. Ann Dowd won an Emmy a year ago for her great and terrifying performance in The Handmaid's Tale on Hulu. She plays Aunt Lydia, an enforcer in Gilead, the Christian theocracy America has become. Ann Dowd was also nominated for an Emmy last year for playing a different kind of spooky cult functionary, Patty Levin on The Leftovers on HBO. You might have only heard of her lately, but you've probably been a fan without knowing it. For instance, she played Tom Hanks' sister in Philadelphia, appeared lots of times on Law & Order. In fact, for decades, she played dozens of scene-stealing supporting roles, like last year as Viggo Mortensen's mother-in-law on Captain Fantastic, and this year as Toni Collette's eccentric friend in Hereditary. She's everywhere, and now we know it. Ann Dowd, welcome to Studio 360. Thank you for having me. It's a pleasure. Before I start... Do you have just the slightest Irish lilt in your voice? I do, and I'm not sure why that is, as I've never been to Ireland, but my background is Irish. Yeah, well, Dowd, right? There you go. But it's more than a little Irish. It's like you were born there and came here at eight or something. It's funny. I don't know what it's about, but it is present. Yeah, it is indeed. Before we get into all of your newish mega success, I want to ask about one of your previous roles in the late 1990s. It was a show I watched at the time, but uh, until I was preparing for this conversation, I just, I didn't realize, whoa, it's Ann Dowd in Freaks and Geeks, the the beloved cult hit of 1999. Uh, uh, You played this uh, character called Cookie Kelly. (laughs) Yeah, uh, I love her so much. Who was, again, a problematic person, mother of uh, uh, the character played by Busy Busy Phillips. Busy Phillips, the doll. Here's here's a clip of of you when you <laughs> when you're ca- catching your daughter, your character's daughter, in a lie. What street is it on? Ben Harbor Street. You are a lying brat. I knew it. I told you. I'm not lying. You guys just can't believe that I can make a friend who's rich and smart. Oh, she's not smart. No, she is. She's really smart. I swear to God, she's smart. She's a bum, like all your other friends. What's happening? It's this car. You're driving around town, you're tramping it up in that car. I know what you do. Yeah, well, you should know. I learned it from you. You're grounded for good. You got me? Newsflash, you're not my father, fat ass. Damn right I'm not. Oh, that's it. We're selling the car. No, that's my car. Aunt Kathy gave me that car. Oh, yeah? Well, your Aunt Kathy spent $1,000 of my money snorting it up a nose. So as far as I'm concerned, that car is mine. That's Ann Dowd. Ha! <laughs> what a blast that was. Uh, you were great in that. I loved it. Yeah. And you know the guy in the back who says, what's going on? Yeah. I had to literally who not Who just look. sort of wakes up and notices. Yeah. That's the writer. That's Mike White. Uh-huh. That's the writer. And they were all, they all looked like they were 16. And, and he subsequently created uh, the HBO series Enlightened. I mean, he's, you know, I couldn't look at him because I would burst out laughing every time. What's going on? I just thought, are you kidding yeah. me? So many times you literally had to say, don't laugh, don't laugh. Because they throw you lines to say. Yeah. 
uh, right there on the spur of the moment, I think, oh, my God, uh, if I can get this out without howling, I, I will. You also had that uh, working middle class semi-Boston accent down really I thought nicely. it was New York. Really? I didn't know what it was. Uh, but when I went into the audition, I thought it's got to be something like this. Yeah, yeah. And they let me do it. Yeah. I was so grateful. It was convincing. <laughs> whatever, whatever, I loved whatever, it. Whatever it was. Um, I had a blast. Yeah. I really enjoyed it immensely. Yeah. And you were kind of, in your rough way, that was a kind of sexy role. Yeah, skinny. Yeah. I'm watching the I'm weight. not just saying that, just in general. Her, she yeah. obviously was a... Somebody yeah. for whom someone put makeup and hair yeah, and you know, a little cleavage, and we're we're going there. All that. Um, more recently, in in the first season of True Detective, you played the serial killer's uh, <laughs> sister. Uh, uh, yeah, uh, love interest companion. Oh God! Here's a clip of you uh, with Woody Harrelson. Where's Billy Childers? Old Bill? Yeah. He's in this house, Mister. Uh huh. This isn't his. <laughs> Where, where, who, who do you, uh, who do you live here with? I think you should go now. Uh, where is he? All around us. Before you were born. And after you die. I loved that, that sister in uh, True Detective. Never got half a chance for a life and somehow found a way to survive. That always intrigues me. Yeah. Uh, given the worst odds, found a way to have a life that to her has meaning. Yeah. Um, I mean, th- that impulse to generosity and kindness about this, the fictional character who, who is not in the straight and narrow or in some cases much worse than that, it, it, that's, is that part of how you f- are able to enact them not as a caricature sympathetically, even if they're bad people? Well, the way I like to describe it would be Rule number one, and you learn this early, is no judgment, because judgment shuts all doors, in my opinion. So if the hope is to meet that character and, and come to know that character, like a relationship or a friendship, uh-huh. you got to be patient, you got to be respectful, and you can't come in with an attitude of, you know what, you've blown it. Right. You're, you've got a problem. You're Hitler, and I'm going to play you like Hitler. That's it. Right. You're yeah. weird, and yeah. you're mean, and you're yeah. just sick. Yeah. That, that, that nothing comes from that. Right. And plus, it's the imagination. It's make-believe. Do you know what I'm saying? Right. So, in uh, real life, you can judge. Yeah, in real life, I just sit there judging left and right. Good. Good. I'm glad to hear it. <laughs> but uh, it's just, it's, it's a great way to get to know a character. To yeah. bring, you know, here's a little bit about me. Tell me a little bit about you. Let's see how far we can go So here. like a shrink of your own character, maybe. So a bit. Well, I think it's more like a friendship. Right. You know, but an intelligent friendship, right. let us say. So most of these roles, the ones I remember, are these great, uh, smallish character supporting roles. I remember someone saying to me, an agent long time ago just saying, you know, you're, you really you realize you're only going to play character roles. And I remember thinking in my head, ah, you're a fool because you're wrong, number one, and you just said the worst thing you can say to an actor. Yeah. Not that a character role is a bad thing, but just any limitation. Right. Anyone who says you can only do this, right away you have to laugh and say, ah, you're yeah. mistaken. Yeah. Um, I want to talk about the role that I think first got you a lot of attention. Uh, in the film Compliance, you played uh, this character, Sandra, who is based on a real person. Oh, I love From that. six years ago. And for people who haven't, didn't see it, haven't seen it yet, uh, describe that movie. Well, it is based on a true story, something that happened over 70 times in 34 states in this country, of a man pretending to be a detective who makes a phone call to usually fast food restaurants on a busy night and gets the manager to take in one of the, her 
waitresses uh, and keep her in the office because she supposedly has stolen something. And it's what ensues when this would-be detective, what is the word, manipulates over many hours the situation and that finally ends up in a full-blown sexual assault. As a, it, yeah. It's just horrific. And, and you play the, this, this fast the, food the manager. The fast food manager. Let's, let's watch. Yes. And I have your regional manager, Robert Gilmore, on the other right. line. We need to act now. Okay. Your responsibility is to facilitate that action. So, I, I, you know, it's your job. You understand? Yes. Yes, I do. And I'll do everything, you know, that you need. Okay. So, I'm going to need you to have her stripped down now. Look through everything. Okay. Um, pieces. It's time to... Let's just try to... The faster you do it, honey, the faster we're finished. Uh, oh, yeah. It reminded me, I mean, again, because now the world knows you as Aunt Lydia in Handmaid's Tale, of a person who thinks she's doing good. Hmm is suddenly doing this awful, awful thing. There's yeah. some parallel there, right? Yeah, it's a funny thing. Uh, you know, that that person, that person, Sandra, somehow... Your character. Yes, in compliance. Long time ago, lost the awareness that you have your own sense of what's right and what's wrong. It doesn't come from authority. It comes from you. You're raised a certain way, but you at some point realize, you know what? Like, had she had some sense of balance about it, she would have said to the guy, "Listen, it's a Friday night. I'm I'm sorry, the situation. I'll call you back, but you got to. You'll have to send someone because I've got to get back to work here, and I can't do these things you're suggesting. I'm just not comfortable. Right? I mean, how hard would that be? It's not hard. Right? For her, it never occurred to her that you can say to someone who says he's a detective, "No." Now, Lydia. You know, again, going back to that notion, don't judge. See if you can figure out why she does what she does. Yeah. So she's in a world that has gone to hell. She, Bruce Miller suggested, our showrunner, that she was probably a teacher. That's hugely helpful in her past life before uh-huh. Gilead. So imagine her in a public school, the promiscuity, the cursing, uh, the, the, the disres- no relationship to God. All dis- of the things that caused the, the world to go dystopia to, to happen. That's yeah. it. And, and then, you know, the beautiful earth destroyed. Uh, uh, and then you can't have babies. I think her realization that in order to write this, there can be no half measures. It has to be full on. It has to be extreme or there is no way that we're going to get things back on track. Right. I think she's committed to that and believes in right. it. Which makes it all the more terrifying in yeah. its yeah. plausibility. I mean, I think yeah. she feels she has a good reason. Yeah. And if it's too too much, I'm sorry, girls. I want to I want to talk about one scene in particular from the f- the first episode of the second season. Um and listeners, there may be some spoilers if you're worried about that. So the handmaids, thank you for listening. The handmaids, <laughs> led by by Elizabeth Moss's character, Alfred, defy uh-huh. uh, Lydia and refuse to stone another of the handmaids, uh, Janine. And Alfred is spared because she's pregnant. Yeah. You have quite an adventure ahead of you, and we are going to make sure you get absolutely everything you need. We certainly won't have any more theatrics, will we? <laughs> Such nonsense. Such a waste of energy. And for what? But nothing. Janine isn't nothing. Do you think you've done her a kindness? Janine is on her way to the colonies. She will suffer because of you. Every handmaid who followed you into disobedience will face the consequences. 
but not you. You are with child, you are protected. But you know that. Such a brave girl, aren't you? Standing in defiance, but risking nothing. Now, eat. I was just thinking, how does one deal with a teenager? I have a teenager now. Uh-huh. And you begin with uh, Bright Spirit, uh, because she is pregnant, and that's what matters most, period, that this baby survive. So we're going to make it hopeful. I think Lydia's hoping she's learned a lesson. We're not going to have defiance. We're not going to have nonsense, right? Right. And let's keep it. Hey, honey, we can do it the easy way yeah, or the hard way. Right. Let's do it the easy way. No, that was way. like a certain kind of motherish yeah, authority let's, let's figure. Let's hope for the best here. And yeah. then when it's clear that in point of fact she has learned nothing, and is still a tough and is defiant as right, ever, right. and just thinks she's the greatest thing that walked in a red cloak. Ah, uh, that's when Lydia just you know I think underneath. From the very beginning, she's on the cusp of, listen, smarty. Seeing you in the your other great performance, uh, one of your other great performances recently in Hereditary. Oh, yeah. Where you play a different kind of religiously motivated <laughs> uh, freak. <laughs> um, and and then looking at your the films you've done, you've, you've played nuns. Yeah, yeah. F- Love them. A few times. I just got back from Australia. In the middle of July, uh, having played a, a, a nun a, living in a monastery. In a show we haven't seen yet. It's called Lambs of God. It's wonderful. Sarah Lambert, yeah. based on the novel by Morel Day. Uh-huh. And you, you grew up Catholic. I did. Went to Catholic college. Went to Catholic graduate school. Well, I went, yes, in fact. Yeah. Right. Uh, so are, are you still religious? Are you Catholic? Are you religious? I am not religious, uh. no. I have a, a spiritual life with which I am comfortable, mm-hmm. uh, but it is not based on religion. No. But when you think about Lydia or the nuns, do, do you, you you must draw on that sure. life experience. absolutely. Yeah. Prayer is something I'm very comfortable with. I mean, I was raised that way. I think they're beautiful. Uh, so learning that kind of uh, language is, is something that appeals to me. The work ethic I certainly draw on that. Uh, the devotion to God, meaning it's not about you or me. It's about being in service to God. Uh, that's very familiar to me. Um, don't make it about yourself. Consider others. I was going to say kindness, but I don't suppose that applies to Lydia, does it? <laughs> not on no. the surface. No. Now, now, the measure of how much your enactment of Lydia has gotten into the culture really became clear Last spring at the at the White House Correspondents' Dinner, oh, God. right when yeah. Michelle Wolf, the comedian, doing her famous bit, much of which focused on Sarah Huckabee Sanders, uh, directed uh, in, in one of her jokes about her, it was referring to your character. Here's the bit of that. And of course, we have Sarah Huckabee Sanders. We are graced with Sarah's presence tonight. I have to say, I'm a little starstruck. I love you as Aunt Lydia and The Handmaid's Tale. <laughs> Mike Pence, if you haven't seen it, you would love it. The LA Times asked you what you thought, and you wrote, I assume you and not your publicist wrote, um, this beautiful uh, response, which I happen to have here. Oh, how nice of you. Uh, (laughs) Do you want me to read it? I would love you to read it. Uh, From my experience, Lydia is a straightforward person with a low tolerance for confusion and nonsense. Had she been offered the job of press secretary for the present administration, she most likely would have turned it down. 
Also, Lydia has the comfort of believing that everything she says and does is in service to God. Miss Sanders has no such luxury. Nicely said. Well, I, and I also, I didn't want to insult her, you see. I don't no, know. it was classy. Oh, good. Thank and you. And thoughtful. Thank you. And smart. Let's talk about your other performance uh, nominated for an Emmy last year, Patty uh, in The Leftovers. Here is a clip from the second season. It's a very complicated situation, but you're kind of haunting Kevin, uh, Justin Theroux's character. He confronts you in the woods and says he knows somebody who will help exercise you. So, what? He knows what you are. He knows how to get rid of you. And why the f- are you out here in the woods calling for me? This man gave you a solution, and you ran. You think I'm scared to do battle with you? Oh, Kevin. I am so desperate to do battle. So let's go. Let's go back. Right now. Let's go and die. So we shot that for a bit. Huh. In the deep in the woods, how pretty are those woods? Yeah. This is in Austin, Texas. And that scene, uh, I mean, you socked him. Did, did was that a real slap? Do you know what? I'm embarrassed to tell you that it was, and it shouldn't have been, because I'm old enough to know you don't do it for real. That's why they have stage combat, and he's a trooper. He should have slugged me back, uh, because that, I mean, I hauled off and whacked him. And that was that was a one take sock. Well, that was. I mean, afterward, I felt terrible about it, and he was very generous and kind. But yes, I did, in fact, hit him. You method actor. You. How awful. That's yeah. terrible. Yeah. It really is. Patty was another kind of scary character. Are, are you okay with being typecast as these terrifying people? Yeah, my husband said, um, you should be, I mean, don't you want to play someone who's, like, nice? <laughs> or something? I mean... I don't know. I never think about it. Typecast. I don't know. And I love going to the lower depths. I just think that's yeah. a ticket to heaven. Yeah. It seems to me that you are an example of one of several people who this is the, this is a kind of golden age for middle-aged great actresses. I mean, Laurie Metcalf. Oh God, she's so you, good. You, uh, Margot Martindale, yes. bit older. Um, but like all these. People doing great work, and and we now know their names in a way that, like, isn't that wonderful? Twenty years ago, we wouldn't. No, you're right. I think that's fantastic. I, I couldn't be, honestly. Well, I couldn't be more grateful, but and that is the truth. But when you see women are fascinating human beings, men are too. But a woman's story? Are you kidding? And life is more interesting as you get older. Yeah, I, I don't know how else to put it. Yep. it's so much more. Uh, there's so much more to it. Um, I mean. I think it's tremendously underrated in some ways. Physically, it's a bit of a, a nuisance. But uh, emotionally and otherwise, oh, my gosh, you're just getting started, really, aren't you? And you let go of this and you let go of that. And you think, what was I worried about that for? No, no, no. Let go of the controls. Drop the armor. Don't need it. Yeah. That's kind of a lovely thing. Yeah. Um, and, Dowd, you're a pleasure to, to watch so are in, you. Uh, on, on television and movie theaters, but in real life as well. I wish people could see you when you when you talk. Your very expressive face. Really? 
and your thoughts are so going... So it's not just a face for radio, you're telling <laughs> no, me. No, I'm saying I wish you could film this. It's very good. And out, uh, really, a delight. Thank you. Thank you for having me. Uh, the Handmaid's Tale uh, is, of course, streaming on Hulu. And The Leftovers is available on HBO Go. And every other thing you've ever been in probably is available somehow easily these days. Everybody is wondering what and where they all came from. As long as we're on the subject of apocalyptic religious dystopias... No one knows when it's going to happen. After that, it's going to be pretty awful here on Earth. Evil will just take over. How in the 1970s, belief in Armageddon and the end times spread from the counterculture all through pop culture. You really believe all that? Oh, that's a luck. I'll say one thing. Anybody that's left here is going to need it. That's next on Studio 360. Last fall, I published a history of America called Fantasyland about our national predisposition to believe the excitingly unlikely and untrue. From the start, such as the true believers aboard the Mayflower, lots of American Protestants have been expecting the end of the world sooner rather than later. This apocalyptic strain has waxed and waned and comes in different flavors, but according to one big version, as all signs point to the imminent second coming of Christ, all true Christians will suddenly vanish from the earth before the final victorious battle with Satan. This belief in a, an escape hatch from the horrors preceding Armageddon was an add-on propagated in the 1800s. And for a century, it mostly stayed on the margins of American Protestant belief. Then, in the late 1960s, along with so much other magical thinking, it got an improbable boost from the counterculture. Studio 360's Evan Chung has the story. In 1969, an enigmatic musician named Larry Norman released a song called I Wish We'd All Been Ready that gives me chills every time I hear it. The music is hauntingly beautiful, and the lyrics seem to be this mysteriously bleak vision of a dystopian future. Life was filled with guns and war and everyone got trampled on the floor. I wish we'd all been ready. Children died, the days grew cold, a piece of bread could buy a bag of gold. I wish we'd all been So what is going on here? Children died, the days grew cold. There'd never been a rock song quite like this. But it didn't come out of nowhere. I Wish We'd All Been Ready was one part of a revolutionary wave of evangelical Christian pop culture that resonated deeply with people in the early 70s and not with some stereotyped idea of straight-laced Bible Belt conservatives, but the long-haired freaks of the hippie counterculture. They were a generation in crisis, and it had an urgent message for them that the world was going to end any minute. The Father spoke, the demons dying, the sun has come, and you've been left behind. To really understand what this song is about and where it was coming from, you're going to need some context. Before we can get to the end of the world, 
we have to go back to the beginning, or at least 1967. What's happening is uh, a basic change in the evolutionary process of mankind. Thousands of young anti-establishment hippies dropped out of mainstream society and headed to San Francisco on a spiritual journey. Before you can spread love around anybody else, you first got to find it in yourself. But as the summer of love faded, a lot of them were left feeling disillusioned and desperately unfulfilled. The counterculture had experimented with various lifestyles, with psychedelic drugs, with Eastern religions and spirituality. A lot of folks had tried all these things and were just as unhappy and lost as ever. David Stowe is a professor of English and Religious Studies at Michigan State University. There was a sense that okay, nothing that we've tried up to this point has really worked out, so let's try Jesus. Maybe he's actually the answer to our spiritual, cultural quest. Here's one hippie telling his conversion story from a film produced at Calvary Chapel in 1971. And I heard this little voice speak to my heart, and I know it was the Lord. It said, Bruce, you don't need to smoke weed anymore. You don't need to take drugs or do any of those things. I've given you the peace and the joy and the happiness that you've always wanted. All you have to do is just receive it. It was called the Jesus Movement, a new form of evangelical Christianity created in the counterculture's own image. You know, all you got to do is just rush with Jesus, you know, because you've hit up on the greatest trip there is. It might sound odd that young people who had been so anti-establishment would embrace something as established as the church. But they said, wasn't Jesus kind of a hippie? A long-haired, bearded guy in a robe wearing sandals who was sort of out mixing it up with the people in opposition to the authorities. This was not their parents' church. If you became one of the Jesus people, as they were often called, you might give up on drugs and free love, but you could still have long hair and live in a commune. You could worship barefoot and sit cross-legged in the aisles, and you could even play rock music in church. Music was at the center of youth culture in those years. So it made sense that music would be a perfect avenue for developing this new style of Christianity. It was the start of a brand new genre, Jesus rock. These very first Christian rock bands sounded like groups you could see at Woodstock, and many of them were just as good. They're talking about revival and the need for love. That little church is and since the evangelical establishment viewed rock as the devil's music, it still felt like an act of countercultural defiance. The music and the laid-back hippie vibe made evangelical Christianity feel fun and relevant. The Jesus movement spread from San Francisco to Southern California and then became a nationwide phenomenon. In recent years, the more experimental of America's young have gone through oriental religions and mysticism, long hair and offbeat clothing, drugs and sex. Now, in surprisingly large numbers, they're turning to Jesus. That's Bill Stout reporting for CBS in 1971. As media coverage of the Jesus people grew, the figure of Jesus was becoming more and more acceptable to hip young Americans. He was even at the top of the Billboard charts. Jesus is just a rap, 
find me Jesus. When Jesus Those are just a few of the Jesus referencing songs that became big mainstream hits, all in this narrow window between 1968 and 1972. These are all by artists outside the Jesus movement who suddenly found that Christ was an acceptable figure to sing about. Especially a Jesus Christ who was being imagined as a proto-hippie. In fact, Jesus became such a trope in pop music that Norman Greenbaum, who is Jewish, admitted to writing Spirit in the Sky specifically to capitalize on the trend. So you have those top 10 hits. You also have the big Jesus musicals. Suddenly, Jesus was in vogue. But back inside the Jesus movement churches, it was about more than trendiness. And here, as promised, is where the end of the world comes in. Because the Jesus people were trying to make sense of the chaos they saw all around them. 232 GIs killed and 900 wounded makes one of the heaviest weeks of the Vietnam War. Assassinations, racial struggle, gender upheaval, looming nuclear annihilation. Life in America was changing in ways that could sound downright apocalyptic. You can't see the enemy but he's there, in the form of the killer gas, sulfur dioxide, and other murderous air pollution. The Jesus people found answers in a book, written by a former tugboat captain, now ministering to UCLA students, named Hal Lindsey. Men telling us that the population explosion may make man extinct by the turn of the century ought to make people sit up and say, what is going to happen to this earth? Hal Lindsey believed that we could know exactly what was going to happen. In 1970, he published The Late Great Planet Earth, a surprise bestseller that argued that behind all the madness in the daily news was a secret message. Right before our eyes, this generation is seeing signs which tell us that we are racing toward the end of the world. He traced every major current event back to an apocalyptic prophecy in some cryptic Bible verse. The clues were all around us. Earthquakes, floods, changing weather patterns. These were all predicted by the ancient Hebrew prophets. That's from the movie adaptation of The Late Great Planet Earth. And it's such a compelling and articulate and vivid way to interpret the geopolitical Universe. Amy Frickholm is a scholar of end times culture in the United States. The Bible became as fresh as the newspaper headlines. And you could take the Bible in one hand and the newspaper in the other hand, and you'd really understand what was going on. I think there's a lot of power, a feeling of, of real joy and energy around this idea that you know the right answers, that you finally read the Bible in exactly the right way. You have cracked the code and you can predict the future. Biblical interpretations like that are compelling. But for many mainline Christian churches, they're just too much of a stretch. These denominations, including the Catholic Church, will issue warnings or memos urging people to reject this point of view because they find it deeply anti-biblical and anti-Christian. But that didn't stop the popularity of the late great planet Earth. That book 
began to be sold on college campuses exactly as part of the counterculture and as part of the Jesus People movement. And really no one knows how many copies of it were sold because it was entirely done outside of mainstream culture. It was published and distributed outside of mainstream counting mechanisms. People talk about it as the best-selling book of the 1970s. There wasn't much actually new about the late great planet Earth theologically. Hal Lindsey was updating and repackaging a 19th century apocalyptic belief system, which is called dispensational premillennialism. That sounds super unwieldy, but Hal Lindsey turned it into a real page-turner for young Americans. The book reads like a thriller, with you as the main character, and you had to act fast. I'm saying that if you don't turn around, it's all going to be for nothing because it's all going to burn. Hal Lindsey didn't set an exact date for when the end times would begin, but the feeling that the hour was imminent yet unknown made it all the more provocative. The end times could be triggered at any moment by the event that Lindsey called the ultimate trip, better known as the rapture. So the very first event in the dispensationalist premillennial worldview is the secret rapture in which at any time it could happen now, it could happen in five minutes, three days from now, Jesus will return to earth and take all true believers with him to heaven in a single moment. The goal is to be one of those people. Gotta get away, said the world is a downer. Gonna leave that day, gonna be an out-of-towner. So here, finally, was a solution to all those anxieties that young Americans were facing. You could literally escape as long as you were a true believer. But that introduced a new problem. How could you know that you were good enough to make the cut? And this really stimulates a great deal of anxiety. Mom? There was a deep fear that everyone around them would disappear and then they would be revealed as the one who truly didn't believe. And they would be left behind, and everyone they knew who were true believers would be taken. And this has been a very powerful idea in American culture because it's so provocative. And that's what Larry Norman was singing about so movingly in I Wish We'd All Been Ready. To recap, a faction of disillusioned hippies turned to Jesus for answers. They became entranced by the prospect of escaping the turbulent world through the rapture. But they found themselves confronting a new fear, that they would be left behind. And that widespread anxiety turned I Wish We'd All Been Ready into an anthem of the Jesus movement. A man and wife asleep in bed, she hears a noise and turns her head. He's gone, I wish we'd all been ready. That became arguably the most successful song of Christian rock music. It seemed to have a real visceral impact, this idea that suddenly they would just disappear or the fear that they would not disappear. There's no time to change your mind. I Wish We'd All Been Ready wasn't a radio hit, but it became an underground success in the 70s. It's been covered countless times, and it spread as a kind of campfire sing-along. But why exactly was the prospect of being left behind so scary? What would happen to you? According to dispensational premillennialists, after the rapture comes a terrifying period of hell on earth. You have to survive then seven years of what's called the tribulation. 
in which Satan rules the earth. The timeline of the tribulation is incredibly elaborate, involving famines, earthquakes, a demonic dictator called the Antichrist, a Russian-led confederacy. It's a complicated narrative to explain. And people found it complicated in the 70s, too. Rapture believers needed a way to make it easier to understand. So in 1972, the tribulation became a horror movie. No one knows when it's going to happen. After that, it's going to be pretty awful here on Earth. Evil will just take over. You really believe all that? Oh, lots of luck. I'll say one thing. Anybody that's left here is going to need it. A Thief in the Night was made by a couple of Iowa filmmakers named Don Thompson and Russ Doughton. It tells the story of Patty, a young woman left behind in the rapture. She sees the rise of a one-world government led by the Antichrist. The Imperium is designed to exercise total power for as long as the emergency exists. The Antichrist forces everyone to be branded with a mark on their body, but Patty refuses. Now, young lady, what's your problem? Look, I'm not that stupid. I know that's a computer readout for 666. And Patty goes on the run, pursued by the evil government forces. And these there people will, be will no not place be able to get away high. anywhere. There will be no place to hide. Thief in the Night was meant to stimulate a great deal of fear, and it was very successful in that way. It's got clowns and strange moments where laughing figures appear, screeching on the screen. It's, very, it's a very frightening movie. And of course, the movie's theme song was a cover of Larry Norman's I Wish We'd All Been Ready. There's no time to change your Thief in the Night had a low budget and an enormous impact. One estimate says it's been seen by over 300 million people. But they didn't see it in traditional movie theaters. If you ask anybody who actually saw this movie in the 1970s, they probably will tell you about a church basement somewhere in which they were you know, subjected to this, to this film. At one point, church youth groups were booking a Thief in the Night for informal screenings at a rate of 1,500 times a month. So that's another of the unconventional ways that pop culture spread the message of rapture-based Christianity in the early 70s. The belief that the end of the world was imminent had become a popular, acceptable view for a generation of anxious young people. And people love it because we long for meaning, we long to make sense of everyday life, and this provides a lens, a narrative, a way forward. But by the mid-70s, the Jesus movement's moment in the spotlight was already over. It met the same fate as the rest of the hippie counterculture. All those long-haired kids grew up, got married, and got jobs. And the new generation growing up on disco and punk didn't connect with the flower power aesthetic. The cultural mood of the 1970s shifts pretty dramatically. People are not that interested in stories about Jesus freaks and Christian hippies. But that savvy use of pop culture that the Jesus people pioneered, that didn't go away. Hey, good evening, friends. Welcome to church. How you doing? The evangelical churches and the mega churches that come along adopt the cultural trappings of the Jesus movement. They start bringing popular music into church and a more informal worship style. It becomes the new normal. Okay, let's go. Because you are, you are. 
It's grown from an underground phenomenon to a giant evangelical pop culture industry. Now there's an immense and lucrative infrastructure of Christian labels and radio stations and music festivals. And Christian filmmaking is thriving. You have no idea how much I'm going to enjoy failing you. Yeah, but who are you really looking to fail? Me or God? Rapture belief persists as a major tenet of evangelical thought. And it crossed back into mainstream pop culture in the late 90s when the Left Behind series of Rapture novels became runaway bestsellers. I think that shows how deeply the anxiety exists in American culture. And I think that we have a sense that we're not living in a way that we can sustain. A new report predicts the Earth's temperatures could rise 15% by the end of the century. North Korea says it now has the ability to strike any city in the United States with a nuclear weapon. On Thursday, the world ticked half a step closer to Armageddon, that at least according to the doomsday clock. The idea that the world is going to end is an idea well spread among Christians of various kinds, as well as non-Christians of various kinds. Ah, oh, kids, happy days are just about here. <laughs> the end of smog, school. <laughs> I think there's a strong desire to escape the unfolding of history. There's a lot of apocalypticism in American culture, and it's widespread. Man, just tune in, because we're getting close. We're getting close. You're on the way. You've been left behind. Studio 360's Evan Chung produced that story. Coming up, why some guitar players imitate the early jazz guitarist Django Reinhardt. Some people, they live in the shadow of Django. They like to wear the same shoes, wear a little mustache, learn the songs exactly. That's next on Studio 360. Studio 360. When Stéphane Rumbel was a kid growing up outside Paris in the 1980s, he was in need of some inspiration. His guitar teacher gave him a CD by a French Romani jazz player from the 1930s, Django Reinhardt. I'd never heard music played like that. The notes sounded like they were from another world or something. Like they were not possible to be played on a guitar. It's pure improvised music, and it's so hot and amazing. And I was like, I like that sense of being spontaneous like that. My life took a turn at that moment. I was like, all right, this is it. I I will dedicate my life developing that and studying Django. Django Reinhardt is a French gypsy who was born in 1910 and died in 1953. The term gypsy jazz, I'm not really too fond of it because it is something completely different. So I call it Django's music. And before Django's music, there was no such thing. Because the modern guitar, the guitar with steel string, arrives in the 20s. So Django is really the first one to take this instrument and take it to new heights. I really wanted to unlock the mysteries of Django's music. I was on a mission, you know, and I became very obsessed. I was able to meet a guy named Serge Krief, who is a great master. 
Uh, he doesn't play out too much. He doesn't record. He doesn't do anything. He's just a master. All he does is play guitar 15 hours a day in his apartment. And he's incredible. And I went there and I started to study with the master. He would play guitar for a couple of hours in the morning. Then he would cook uh, chicken wings. So we would eat a pound of chicken wings each. <laughs> and then we would go back to play for like two or three hours, you know. And basically he was having me play rhythm and he would play solos. And I would listen to him. And it was like a big part of my learning. But I had to meet the gypsies. You have to. There's these gypsy camps uh, in north of Paris, and I used to go there maybe once or twice a week, and we would play from like morning until night, you know. I remember being like so well received, you know, like you, you arrive, they give you a coffee, a beer, like sit down, they put you in the shade with their chair, they stand in the sun because you're the musician, like very generous people. The whole camp was there. Everyone was listening. They were calling for songs. Can you play this one? Can you play that one? You know? And so you just play and play and play and play and play. It's like the ancient way of learning. You have the vibe, because when you are in, in a gypsy camp, you have the vibe of the gypsy camp. This is something you cannot learn at school. You cannot learn in a book. It's not a technique. It's not something like that. It's the soul the very soul of that music, you know? When I first arrived in the United States, uh, it was August 11, 2000. I arrived with my bag and my guitar and I barely spoke English, you know? And the first thing I did a couple of days later, or maybe the, the day after, you know, was to go to a Woody Allen Yahoo group. I was like, I need to be in a Woody Allen movie. I love Woody Allen movies, and I want my music to be in his movies because I have the feeling that it's, it should be together, you know? I tried to find, like, how to play music for him. And, of course, like, I could not find any real information, you know? And after a few years here, I kind of like let go of that because like, he's way too big and he's doing his thing. And then uh, I remember my bass player gave my CD to his friend who was working with Woody Allen's editor. And one day I received an email from his, uh, from his producer. And she's like, Stefan, can you compose a song for the new movie? I cannot tell you the plot, but it's about Paris. Can you picture how drop-dead gorgeous this city is in the rain? Imagine this town in the 20s, Paris in the 20s, in the rain, the artists and writers. Why does every city have to be in the rain? And she's like, Stefan, can you write a song that would capture the soul of Paris? All these years of vocabulary, of learning, of working and stuff, it has to happen now. Now is the time, you know? I sat down and emptied my mind and it came to me. I recorded a standard chord progression that we use in waltzes. And I came up with that melody and I recorded it.
within like 90 minutes, the song was recorded. Then I did a mix, I sent it, and that was it. Like two hours later, she had the song. And two hours later, she contacted me. She's like, that's great. It fits everywhere we want. I'm contacting your lawyer. We do the contract, and that's that. Bistro Fada is the theme I wrote for the Woody Allen movie, Midnight in Paris. You've been wondering why I've been acting strange all day. Yeah. You're about to find out, and you're going to wonder why I wasn't acting more strange when you find out. Trust me. I know. I know. Some people, they live in the shadow of Django. They like to wear the same shoes, wear a little moustache, learn the songs exactly, listen to Django and the guys playing Django only. And you have people who live in the light of Django. Okay, Django like took any kind of risk that he wanted. He had to express like something beautiful in his own way. Uh, he was open to any kind of music that was coming to him. And that's the path that I choose, you know, like use Django as a light rather than a shadow. That was Stefan Rombel talking about his idol, the jazz guitar player Django Reinhardt. That story was produced by Rhiannon Corby and Studio 360's Tommy Bazarian. And that is it for this episode. We certainly won't have any more theatrics. <laughs> Studio 360 is a production of PRI, Public Radio International, in association with Slate. Such nonsense. Such a waste of energy. Our executive producer is... Jocelyn Gonzalez. Our senior editor is... Andrew Adam Newman. Our sound engineer is... Sandra Lopez Monsalve. Our producers are... Evan Chung. Lauren Hansen. Sam Kim. Zoe Saunders. Tommy Bazarian. Our production assistant is... Morgan Flannery. And I am Kurt Anderson. Newsflash, you're not my father, fat ass! Thanks very much for listening. PRI Public Radio International. Next time on Studio 360, a rock and roll American icon. You take a guy who can write surrealist lyrics and scream in key and plays a guitar that sounds like it's strung with piano wire, and it's either going to be an absolute disaster or the most fantastic thing you've ever heard. Nirvana's Nevermind, part of a whole hour about the culture of the Pacific Northwest, next time on Studio 360.